I just, I'm going to interview you, but what kind of podcast do you want to make? <laughs> uh, you're listening to Ink Studs, and I'm sitting in a cartoonist studio, uh, courtesy of my pal Simon Roy. Thank you, Simon, for 
letting us sit here. He's sitting in a corner drawing. And I'm joined by my guest this week, Steve Skoros. Did I actually... I forgot to check. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Well, it's... Is it like Skroch? Well, it's actually... The proper Croatian would probably be Scroce. And... Um, it's always just been pronounced Skroce. I think my, my dad came here. He's a Croatian immigrant. I think people just pronounced it Skroce. And he didn't want to correct them. And that's what he says. But when he, he's around his other Croatian friends... He'll say Scroce. When I went to Croatia, it was Scroce. I think Scroce sounds better than uh, Skros. And um, Skros definitely has like a body part sound to it. Well, I got a lot of uh, yeah. I don't want to go into what those they're obvious, but yeah, I was plagued with those as a child. And um, anyway, so yeah, it's Skros. But and there was this moment uh, when I did the stand. We stand on guard with Brian Bond and. They were about to, uh, I forget what it was, some kind of interview or something, and he was going to talk to someone. He went, I wanted to get the pronunciation of your name right. Is it Scroce or Scros? And for a second, I said, well, it's it's Scroce. I thought, well, now's the time. I'm coming back into comics to reveal my properly pronounced name. And then my wife was like, you pretentious idiot. What are you doing? Like, Everyone you know knows you as Scros. So if you start going around with your changing your name, you know? So, yeah, I'm gonna go with Scroche just to just to it's not wrong. That. I was looking at your Wikipedia page and, and oh, really? this kind of ties in well. It's it's very minimal, but it was like they they made a point, whoever wrote it, to point out that you are a Croatian cartoonist. But I'm not really. I know. You're you just said you're Canadian, but it I, I found it interesting that like it was really important to someone that like that is core essence of who you are. <laughs> they should change that. Yeah, they claimed me uh, Croatians, like, barely. I don't know any... I went to Croatia once for a friend's wedding, like, never to go visit the family that I have there. And, um, yeah, it's kind of weird. I should change that, but, uh, yeah, whoever wrote that was very interested. He was very proud that I was Croatian. Is, yeah. But, uh... Yeah, I'm a bad Croatian fan. But my mother is, like, Irish, and I don't really identify there either, you know. I actually recently found uh, Vancouver's Balkan neighborhood. It's a two-block strip over by Edmund Sky train station. Mm -hmm. And it has, like, a Balkan restaurant, a Balkan butcher, and a Balkan bakery. Mm. Well, what was your experience like? Was it uh, really nice? Um... The sausages I got from the butcher shop were phenomenal. Hmm. They were very delicious. Simon's heard me talk about this far too much, but I know I actually made him come to that neighborhood. Oh, okay. Just to try. We went to the, the Balkan House restaurant, and I got a uh, pork schnitzel that was hmm. just like this tube of pork, deep fried, and in the middle had cream cheese, and then the thick layer of cream cheese on top. Mm. It was intense. Decadent. Yeah. Was my, uh, my mother is, uh, oh, my stepmother is uh, a pretty good cook, and she always makes nice dishes for us. Yeah. Lots of cream cheese? None. None at all. She's actually super health conscious. She's definitely going to live to be like 130. She's trying to keep my dad alive all the time. So, you know, sometimes the meals are challenging because she'll make something really delicious, some great seasoned meatball or some meat thing. And then there'll be like a, uh, you know, like some dessert with no sugar or fat in it whatsoever.
or it'll be like some kind of cookie that you'll have, you'll have this like great salty meat and then you'll just like you'll like bite into this cookie and it'll just like become like a dust ball bowl in your mouth and uh, <laughs> it's like you've got a spoon of cinnamon yeah well sort of and it's just kind of like but you've got to muscle your way through through the dessert I've already, I've already overeaten when I was a young boy working at a comic store um Many years ago, back in, the, back in the 90s, um, you were kind of legendary in that way, because uh, I worked at the Comic Store Port movie. Um, oh, yeah? And you were a kid from Vancouver. And so there was something where it's like, talking about your work, uh, there was always a lot of pride in that, but also like, a little bit of mystery of like, who is this kid? And um, it's been really neat, kind of... From then, of knowing your work and seeing kind of how you progress and kind of see you come back to comics. Um, and so I hope for today is kind of cover that kind of spectrum of time. Um, because I think there's, like, as someone from Vancouver coming back to Vancouver, there's so much important history with you. It's part of that Vancouver cartoon history, comics history. And so, well, I guess one of the main things I'm curious about, because you mentioned before the interview your age, and you're five years older than me. I'm not spoiling anything. People know. No, that's true. And um, <laughs> so you were pretty young oh, yeah. when you started comics, because that was 25 years ago when Ecto Kid came out. Oh, I got in at the height of the boom when they would hire anyone with a pencil to do a comic. If you kind of like you know, could draw anything. They would give you a series at Marvel or DC. There were so many freaking comics out of those days. And, um, yeah. And so I got hired at Marvel. I went down. I did the whole thing where, since I was 13 years old, it was like before that, but when I was 13, <laughs> I was understood that you had to send samples to the, you know, the company. So I'd always, like, send these little Xerox packets. My mom worked at school, and I would go in after hours and, like, make all these Xeroxes of my my little crude drawings and uh, send it to them and in the hopes that they would hire me and um, and that went on you know I did that for for years and I have a ton of rejection letters and then finally eight, I turned 18 graduated high school and so I got in my Yugo which was a terrible car worse than Eastern Bloc it was like my dad's Croatian and I think the war broke out there and it was a Serbian made car okay. and so he didn't want to drive it anymore, and so he didn't want to get rid of it, so he gave it to me. And it was the cheapest brand new car ever made. I mean, you could buy, buy a brand new one for like two grand or something. And it's like, it was, you know, you would... So I drove that to San Diego. Wow. Literally, it's the kind of car, like, if you roll down the window too fast, that, that thing will break off. And that happened. And the door thing, uh, you know, the door handle... The latch. Also, yeah. the latch, it broke as well on both sides. And so to get in and out of the car, I would have to, there would be like this, this nub for the, uh, for the window that you, you could turn, you know, had a sharp end on it and you would, that's how you would lower, lower and raise the windows. And that's how you get in and out because you had to reach and open it from the outside. Anyway. I love it. Um, so I drove that to San Diego. I had been, you know, sending, uh, Xerox packets of my work back and forth and met an editor there who ultimately would hire me like two or three months later um yeah pretty much the same story of every comic book writer or art or comic book artist where you know you send in samples and eventually they hire you yeah 
Um, did you have, like, what was some of the stuff you were really excited about as a kid and kind of what you wanted to do? Or was it just like, I need to get a job in comics and whatever? I was an 80s guys? comics kid. I loved everything, you know. Uh, you know, the big ones were like, you know, the, the usual stuff. So you've got the Ellen Moore. You've got Frank Miller. You've got, uh, you know, the Dark Knight, Watchmen, Killing Joke. You know, Claremont's X-Men from John Byrne all the way up to Jim Lee. I read all, you know, that was my my thing. And uh, I was reading a lot of, everything that my puny budget could sustain, I read, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, I probably missed an issue of West Coast Avengers and, uh, you know, the Hawkeye miniseries or something. But, uh, no regrets. yeah, you know, I read that, all that, all that stuff. And um, so I wanted to do that. And uh, we went... Went down there, got a job, and I got hired on this thing called uh, Ecto Kid. Clyde Barker wanted to get in on this boom that was happening. And so he created like six concepts that would be uh, written and drawn by some people that Marvel would hire. It was called Razor Line. And uh, that bombed, but that was my first first gig. I got nine issues out of that. And uh, that's actually where the Wachowskis, who I did a lot of film work with, mm-hmm. I met them on that. They were also aspiring writers at the time before they broke into film they did comics for a while and that was their longest running one actually oh. and uh, yeah so yeah so I did that and uh, you know took, went to New York you know working on Ecto Kid got me in the offices I got hired on an X-Men book Cable you know one of those ones you they were all pretty not, they weren't like very good you did the Age of Apocalypse I remember working in a comic store when that was coming out well that was like my biggest deal working at Marvel was Age of Apocalypse the X-Men X-Men right uh, <laughs> Cable they went and switched time up what happened again I can't remember someone goes back in time and kills Professor X and we have an apocalyptic future and Cave the, the version of Cable in this version of this world is some young dude with no metal with no metal yeah and he's got like I look at that costume now. I think what I was going for was, you know, kind of the, the David Lynch Dune still suit. Okay. But it's like terrible. It's like he's got like this little corset that he wears. <laughs> I still can't, I can't figure out why he looks like that. But anyway, that particular, I, you know, that was a lot of, that was an exciting time for for me anyway as a, as a kid. And uh, a lot of, con- all sorts of conventions and traveling and I'm like 20 uh, 20 years old, you know, got hired at 18, Yeah. 23 years old, and uh, that was that was pretty cool. Pretty much just doing the Marvel thing for... For a little while, and then the Wachowskis years. kind of, um, well, they, they started, they were, we sort of hit it off and uh, remained friends, and they, um, uh, they sold this script Assassins, and then they got into movies, and they wrote... To, and directed this film called Bound, which was their first film, which they asked me to storyboard, and I wouldn't do it because I didn't want to leave the rock-solid world of comic books for this <laughs> flash-in-the-pan movie thing. And uh, But then they had another movie a couple years later called The Matrix, and uh, they brought me down on that, and they let me... Marvel was actually very... Um, uh, you know, um, they, they let me return to the, the books. I think it was like Spider-Man or something at one point. Yeah. Originally, the Matrix films were like um, the first one was, um, you know, I worked on it for like six, seven, eight months over like a two year period. So I would come out for a small period of time and work for them for a few months. And then they would 
pick, take what I had done and uh, Jeff Darrow, what he had done, and maybe another, at that time it was just the two of us, and they would take that to the studio and um, use that work to pitch it and to get more development money. Mm -hmm. And then I would be brought back, you know, for a longer period the next time, and they would have a bigger art department, and it would start to be a real film, and... Um, Things just yeah. got realer and realer. But realer and realer, and then they would fall, when I finally finished, it looked like it was not going to be made, and then like six months later, it happened, and, you know, so that kind of started the my segue into movies. So that was that something that just kind of happened? Um, like, was that necessarily wasn't necessarily something you were looking to do to find any opportunity? It was just I, kind of my like, only plan in life was to draw the X Men. I mean, like that was when I was young, you know. And you just like, got the X Men. I just got the X Men. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Damn it! One letter away from my dream. <laughs> But uh, I did draw one issue of Uncanny X-Men. Okay. But, um, yeah, it's funny how that changes. Like, I mean, that, those comics were such a big deal to me when I was a kid. The, you, know, you know, Claremont, Paul Smith. And I was John Meter Jr. With... stuff? Uh, well, that's more 90s, John Meter Jr. I guess he's in... No, he's in, you're right. No, he's he in is... there in the 80s. Yeah. That's cause... probably the better... You know, totally. Some... Well, he followed Paul Smith, yeah. if I remember correctly. So... Yeah, I like it, but I really love Paul Smith, and so that was like the change of artist. You know, I got used to him, and I love John Jr. now. He's like literally one of my favorite comic book superhero artists, you know. Yeah. Um, Paul Smith, like, I, I always really loved Paul Smith's comics, and kind of like thirsty for more. Um, that's what the kids say, right, Tom? <laughs> thirsty for more? Um, that and thirsty people. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, like, his stuff on the X-Men, like, really, like, I still look at it, it still looks great, it's great, like, storytelling, really nice, simple style, but, like, um, effective. Well, he had fantastic, you know, composition, there was, like, lots of depth, I mean, the character acting was, like, perfect, and, uh, you know, Drew Logan was so amazing, and it was, like, this... It was right before the that led into they had the comics that led into the miniseries, uh, Logan's miniseries, uh, Wolverine. The first oh, one. The, the Miller, the Miller Claremont one, and uh, it was him in Japan and meet the Silver Samurai for the first time and Yukio and yeah, it was like back when that shit was so good and um, you know you know simple. It was just like cool story. Yeah. It wasn't like fucking 50 million <laughs> versions of... <laughs> Traveling back and forth through time. Yeah, well, look, they have a very difficult job. I mean, uh, the ongoing story, you know, you just it just keeps adding and adding to it, and it's it's hard to, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to wield all that middle. You know, there's no, like, third act. Yeah. You know? But anyway. Anyways. Love those comics. Um, getting, getting into film... And one thing I'm really interested in is kind of you and Daryl connecting um, because like you guys created Doc Frankenstein together. Uh, but I think like there's something unique in, in working closely with someone, especially someone who I'm presuming you had been looking up to quite a lot. My first experience with Jeff Darrow was going into the comic book store and seeing Hard Boiled and picking it up, flipping through every page of it and just being sickened by it. 
It was <laughs> the most fucked up thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was so violent. People were having orgies, and there there's a, a ref mach- uh, chainsawing them in half, and like you know, Hollywood and Vine was just like like my little mind was literally <laughs> blown when I saw that. I'd never seen anything like it in my life, so I took it. I did the only thing you could do is I took this disgusting comic and I put it back on the shelf. And I walked out. I bought my issue of Dark Hawk. I walked <laughs> out of the store, and uh, but then I kept thinking about it, you know. And um, I just never seen anything like it. So I came back the next week and I bought it the second week, and uh, yeah, just obsessed over it. And um, it was a big fan of his work, and I guess all the way up until. Yeah, then they hired him for The Matrix, which was pretty cool, because I knew who he was, and um, yeah, it was amazing. So it was like, the Wichita, we, they had us at this hotel in L.A. Uh, for this first round of Matrix artwork, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> it's just them, the Wachowskis, and their uh, wives, and um, me and Darrow. And so him and I were just hanging out, he's like, well, let's go for breakfast, and uh, you know, I'm like 19 or something, and... Uh, and he's like yeah, he seven was, feet tall. And... Yeah, he's, he's he's hilarious. He's he's still one of my best friends, and uh, one of the was one of the great um, strokes of lucky strikes of my creative life was meeting him. Because mm. I didn't know anything about drawing. My drawings were so shitty. I had no actual fundamental skills. And I'd be doing these storyboards where, like, you know, the horizon line. I didn't know what any of that stuff was. And so the, the, some of the drawings would be so, like, they would be impossible to film because, yeah. um, you know, the, the perspective just doesn't work the way I drew, drew them. It was like this craziness. And he would help me through all that, and he just basically gave me basic drawing lessons. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so it was, so that started our friendship, and um, uh, we started, you know, just talking on the phone, and we would keep, we also had this big experience that we went through together as we got to, then go and you know work on the um, come back for the movie. You know, when it was a little larger and had a, a more of a production budget, and they brought us both out, and we were we would stay at these uh, little corporate suites together and and hang out. And yeah, it was great to go around LA with him, and he would take me to this uh, cool DVD shop, and uh, you know, expose me to a lot of things that like this is a pre-internet era. Yeah, I know no one who's knows it has any sort of real. Um, taste you know it's just whatever I pick up at the comic store is my whole you know reference drawer for art and so that was uh, yeah really uh, really good to have him come in and he would recommend movies the guy's an insane movie buff and he showed me all kinds of uh, cool things was there kind of new comics that you're getting exposed to that t- time as well because I mean his depth of knowledge of your well, and stuff I definitely found Akira late um, so I'm sure that would have been that's probably earlier than when I met him, but maybe not. I'm trying to remember now. Comics at that time. Well, I was still, you know, not very cool. I was reading a lot of Marvels and DC stuff. Yeah. You know, back in those days. Well, you know, at that point, that's not true. You know, the other thing, Dan Klaus was someone who I had found and really loved his his stories, like. You know, he's got a lot. Everyone talks about a velvet glove cast in iron, and uh, you know, he says more recent ones. You know, David Boring and that time travel one he just did. I'm forgetting the name of. But for me, it's Dan Pusey. Yeah. Because I was going through that. 
as I was reading, I was like, I know these guys. I'm just, well, I know them from they were they were around. You know, I was image was such a big deal. It was so exciting as well. Yeah, seeing that in comics and uh, you know Jim Lee and Liefeld and McFarlane were like my heroes as well. So it was so that was the other thing. Uh, was that something you wanted to do? Was at some point trying getting into image? Well, you kind of had to dream. Like back then, it was kind of like, uh, oh, that would be, you know, it never happened, but it was always like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if you got that call to go work on that new image book that sold 800 million copies? And then I could just. <laughs> you could start a recording studio in your basement. Yeah, exactly. But that never happened. But, uh, well, maybe later on, I worked for Rob Liefeld at Awesome Comics. This is when, like, I guess the the downturn had happened, but they yeah. were still doing okay. That was like the near the very end of Alan Moore's stint there, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, because there had, what was before? It was Extreme, right? Yeah. But they were still with Image? Or they had broken mm-hmm. off? I think at point. some point it, it got kicked out. Um, and then, because I don't think Alan Moore ever actually worked. Was Supreme published by Image when he was? I can't remember. But definitely there was a I'm going to say yes. I think it is, because I remember looking at those things, and they have an eye on them. So, And I think he had to, when he left Image, that's why Awesome happened. Yeah. Because this was the new stuff. Uh, yeah, so I got to do that, unfortunately. we only, Me and Alan only got to do a couple issues of that. That was in between, like, the Matrix 1 jobs. Yeah. Uh, but that was super cool. I heard that, like, the stuff he was trying to do at that point... Was basically like the blueprint for what they're not doing for America's Best Comics. Uh, like that was kind of like probably you know what I got to be top ten. What you did with Youngblood, I would I got offered top ten first because we had worked on Youngblood together. Alan okay, and I, and I lifetime regret chickened out because I wanted to go back to the safe womb of Marvel, uh. and, and uh, it was a wimp. And I went back, and I drew Gambit instead, <laughs> which was uh, no, you know, look, it's not a bad job, but it wasn't. Um, top ten was really cool. Although um, you probably did a better job. Uh, Gene Ha did an amazing job on that comic, so, mm-hmm. so uh, it all worked out. Does that experience, that kind of like that hindsight, twenty twenty? Um, kind of make you reevaluate what you're doing with your comics? What you wanted out of? Oh, did, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, and then Awesome was also, that fell over, and you just kind of, you put so much of yourself into these things, and you just, I don't know, it's your whole heart. And then they, you know, the company collapses, and then, you know, or, yeah, you, know, you go take the job that you think is smarter, and maybe it's just not as fun. So, yeah, that definitely put that seed into my mind that I should be doing my own thing, but then, of course didn't really do that. I did movies for a number of years. Mm-hmm. With the Wachowskis and Darrow, we created this little comic company called Burly Man, but that kind of, uh, you know, we weren't, you got to be in it. You yeah. know what I mean? Both feet yeah. and take it seriously. But we were like doing it and then like, oh, a movie would come, you know, oh, we're going we're gonna to do, you know, get this, this, the sequels. I did those and then that led into Burly Man and then, oh, well, we'll all work on V for Data. Uh, oh, Speed Racer starting up, and so I made the comic stuff uh, fit into you know in between all those yeah. bigger things. When really, when you look back, I wish I had committed more to the comics and at those times. But yeah, yeah. 
that's the way it is. The movie stuff was more exciting. It wasn't until I got older that I started to realize how much of a a blessing comics are to be able to do your own thing like that. Um, I mean, just as a, a life experience, is like storyboards are a great job. I've had amazing jobs, and a lot of great things came out of that. But uh, you know, sitting in a room, kind of making your own stuff, is the best. Yeah, I think. I'm wondering about the um, working on that. Uh, yeah, but. Working on Youngblood, um, getting those out more scripts. Uh, yeah, those how was that for? Uh, for everyone kind of complains about his scripts being so like, oh, not what I want to draw. He he directs you too much, and uh, I think what was good is that I had worked in movies, and that's what you know. A lot of the time, you're getting a lot of direction, and you're trying to realize a vision, and that's really what Alan Moore is. I mean, the script. I mean, everyone likes to say the comic book artist is the director. But it's more like the writer is the director because they're the ones sort of telling you, especially in his scripts, what's happening. And it's more difficult to achieve because it's very specific. You know, mm-hmm. like this happens in this frame. So it'll be very detailed. Like in you know the left side of the frame, this guy is saying this in the, in the background. And your job really is to come up with the best acting and composition to, um, you know, tell that visual story that yeah. he's he's written out. And that's what's challenging about it. But you get such a better comic for it. I mean, his comics are so amazing and entertaining and and just, you know, smart. And, um, you know, it's really... You can pack... I mean, his comics are just packed with so much. Those superhero comics we did just had so many little set pieces yeah. and ideas in them. And, like, on every page there would be, like, something cool. It's not just, like, going from, like, close-up to close-up or muscle, you know, pin-up shot or something. Wasn't there some kind of stuff in there that was, like, kind of proto-reality show type things? It's been a while, quite a while since yeah, I've read sure. those. Um, but I remember there's like some stuff he was doing with characters where they're like um, kind of playing with that celebrity thing with them and being watched. Oh, I think they were all like, and that was something he probably took from life. The Youngblood characters were all like already famous yeah. and kind of liked the fame and stuff. Um, the stuff that I remember most was like he liked being like naughty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there was a speedster girl, and, uh, you know, stuff that would be, like, I don't know, probably pretty, if you put it in a comic now, like, you'd be, like, Leading Pool might say it'd be creepy or something, but, uh, you know, there was a girl who would, like, you know, the, the, the leader, the bow staff guy would be, like, watching, you know, rewinding footage of the, of the, the speedster girl changing super fast or something. Yeah, and he would also there would be this there were these Batman and Robin analogs. This girl called um, who was like the Robin who was called uh, he was called Captain Midnight or something, and she was Twilight, right? <laughs> but they sort of suggested that she was like, uh, and I kind of drew her as kind of with a fetish vibe, you know. But they sort of suggested that maybe they had like a sexual relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Or at least that's what Alan initially wanted to. Yeah, or maybe not even that subtext. But uh, I think uh, think Jeff Loeb was running the company at that time, and yeah, they kind of maybe put the kibosh on it, (laughs) put more sub onto the text. Um, But he had a lot of little funny things like that where he would play with the tropes. Anyway, it was a good comic. It's too bad it it ended with the uh, second second issue. Yeah, no, it it was really neat to me. It also seemed for me. Kind of looking at you artistically, uh, a big stylistic shift. 
like well, it started kind of working with yourself down a bit. Working with Darrow, he had taught me about you know volume, depth, and uh, composition. Yeah. And so once you know those kind of uh, that was kind of revealed, I started adding. I would say even before that, the Young Blood, you know, in Spider Man, especially the later issues, uh, pretty much post X Man, I started doing a, a lot more of you know thinking about. Before that, I was kind of doing the 90s thing of thinking about that anchor image on every page, that kind of um, popular, you know, mm-hmm. you've got like a cool superhero pose, and then there's like a bunch of little panels around it telling yeah. whatever the story is. And, um, and it's just an explosion of shit everywhere. Yeah. And more, and then after that, I kind of thought like, you know, every panel is important, and like the big ones are like, you're, you're playing a, an important note, and you know, kind of got, started thinking about it more as kind of a, a whole piece working together, all these images, um, giving them each attention uh, and consideration, you know, rather than just, you know, wait to show that uh, splash pose. Yeah. Yeah, so I definitely feel like if there were, like, arcs of where you're at, like, the Marvel stuff being kind of, like, high school and then, like, young yeah, being, like, getting into college... Right. And now I'm back at night school. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm, uh, what am I now? Like, uh, you know, I'm getting my degree from uh, the, what is it, the University of Phoenix? Phoenix? Yeah, Yeah, there we go. Just stay stay at home and do it all online. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so after doing, you did quite a lot of movies after The Young Blood. And the gambits. did all the Wachowski movies, and then in there, the, one of the best experiences I had on a movie. I mean, it was great working on their movies, but this one was good because I wasn't really the production designer had hired me for the George Miller um, Justice League film, which was like I was so excited to do it because I had never done those characters before. Yeah, and I got to go down to Australia, which I'd never done, and this was before like the collapse of DVD, and like there was just. So much money in show yeah. business in those days that like there was always like you'd have this like stocked kitchen. They would like at Christmas time they had three separate parties and and it was very exciting. There was a lot of it was a bit glamorous, you know. And uh, yeah, that was a, a cool time. Spent like five months in, in Sydney working at his office and um, it was pretty cool. Now, would it have been better than the Zack Snyder version? Maybe, probably. <laughs> it wasn't exactly like the fans version either. His had a more of a, a younger uh, skewer and a little bit younger. It was a bit funner, I think. But it was. I don't think it's hard to be funner. Just gonna throw that in there. Than the uh, than uh, the Zack Snyder Doom and Gloom. <laughs> well, it was Doom and Gloom, and then like, and then all of a sudden, in Justice League, it's a uh, uh, Marvel style or something. You know, the kind of... Uh, the Whedon effect. Yeah, the Whedon effect. And um, I think it just didn't look very good. I mean, they didn't shoot anything practically. I wish they had done that. I mean, um, just the, how everything is green screened? Yeah, it just doesn't look very very good. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, his his movie had some definitely some cool stuff in there. Batman was, was like... I think it was called Justice League Mortal, and Maxwell Lord was the villain, and he had poisoned the world 
he had ran ran this chain of kind of the kingdom come restaurants. Yeah. Uh, you know that were all the kind of um, you know took all the DC superheroes and made them kind of uh, you know garish, you know um, pop culture icons in that universe. That's kind of what he did. But he had poisoned all the ground beef and the burgers with nanobots. So they would turn everyone who ate one of their burgers into like some kind of crazy robot monster. So the Justice League had to fight all these people, but they couldn't hurt them. And uh, so they have like a huge magnet. What's that? They have a huge magnet to take. Oh, them. you should have been there <laughs> to uh, throw some ideas around. And, uh, well, we we didn't come up with anything that good, but um, <laughs> you didn't watch enough of the Batman TV show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <clears throat> no, I did. I love that show, but it was pretty funny. Um, that was after he did the Babe movie. Yes, I think it was after the Penguin movie as well. Oh wow, he did a lot. Of, he's in a lot of very different films. I uh, after Lorenzo's Oil. I was went to this thing with a bunch of like old school animators from like you know like nineteen eighties Vancouver animators, and I made the mistake of making a Happy Feet joke. And they got so mad. It was really? like, that is not a quality movie. Really? They don't like Happy Feet? They do not like Happy Feet. Because of the animation? or Yeah. I don't know. He's an amazing director, I thought. I mean, yeah. I haven't seen Happy Feet. I just made a joke about Happy Feet. Um, it may be good, it may be bad, but they had some strong opinions. Well, people are like that. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why um, do you just say, I know... Uh, um, you know, no horse in that race. I don't know if I Your loved... feet are neither happy nor sad. <laughs> I don't know if I can even remember Happy Feet. Like, I love Babe. I love both of the Babe movies. I love most of his... All his movies, really. Um, that last Mad Max is okay. <sighs> yeah, man. What was... You know what's amazing is that when I was down there and we're making Justice League, that movie had already been totally planned out. And he's got this giant office upstairs and he's got these whiteboards... They're really neat. I don't know where you got them, but they're like these high-tech boards that you draw on them with a Sharpie or whatever, and the board records it and prints it out. So the entire Mad Max Fury Road movie was already drawn oh, on wow. the boards, and they would like wheel them out every once in a while and have a meeting about it, and it had these drapes over top that would throw back, and then every once in a while you could, if it was lunch or whatever, you could just go in there and like look at them and watch them, watch the movie. Or look were at the they movie like the Brendan McCarthy designs? Uh, they probably were, them. and they must have been. Right? Yeah. Because uh, he's the one who got the big credit. But I think a couple different guys worked on it. A guy named Mark Sexton may have worked on it, I think. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Um, anyway, it was pretty cool. One funny thing that happened to me on that movie, it was my first week in Australia, and The Watchmen is in production in Vancouver. And I got a call from, they needed a prop design for The Watchmen film, which was... Uh, Zack Snyder. Zack Snyder. <laughs> <laughs> he had all goes back to Zack. <laughs> but I got a call to draw the. Uh, they needed someone to recreate the Tijuana Bible from the comic book. Uh, do you remember that scene with the Tijuana? It's like Sally Jupiter and her mom, and her mom's oh, yeah, old yeah, superhero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's kind of it's all about the scene's all about nostalgia and and uh, the young um, Sally Jupiter or whatever her name is yeah. is like you know all disgusted that her mom is looking back nostalgic at this. Tijuana Bible, which is a porno comic from like the 30s. Yeah. And but they needed someone for the scene to create that Tijuana Bible. So I had to recreate it, like draw in his style, Dave Gibbons style, this 
dirty comic book of like you know some guy's got a huge like three foot long cock and there's penetration and, <laughs> and so I to, I'm drawing that and I did it I just went in on Saturday to the Justice League offices and I hadn't met George Miller yet and he was there and I'm sitting there and I'm the only other guy in there and I'm sitting there and I'm drawing this fucking guy with a giant three foot cock and this girl with her legs spread you know totally totally graphic and out of context makes me seem like crazy person <laughs> and uh, and so I'm sitting there drawing and he must see me and suddenly right by my desk there's like this big pillar and suddenly George Miller appears at, at my drawing table he's like oh hello you're the Canadian fellow they've, they've, I haven't met you yet and I'm sitting there at my drawing table with this dirty picture and he must know I'm up to something that I'm doing you're not supposed to do that by the yeah. way you're not supposed to work you know I'm getting a paycheck for this one movie and I'm doing other work movie is very especially when I'm working at their office yes and so he kind of comes around the pillar and in the time he makes that move I take this Batman drawing and put it over top of my dirty drawing <laughs> but it's this total like you know just a sketch of Batman I did that's like not part of a scene or anything but he knows I'm up to something because he comes right up to my table and he's like right over my shoulder and he's like oh what are you doing there? oh that's wonderful but he was very nice and very friendly and a wonderful experience and uh Anyway, he never saw the truth. Who hopefully. knows what could have happened if he saw that drawing? Could have changed. Could have brought something to the movie. It could have been used in another movie. Or he pulls out from his pocket. I do them too, and then he. Does it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the least likely scenario. One can. Anyway, I didn't get away. called back for Mad Max. <laughs> the moral of the story is. Um, but it was really funny. They had that guy, Army Hammer, was going to be Batman. Oh, nice. You know, you know Army Hammer? He's in, uh, he was in Lone Ranger. He was in, nominated for um, Academy Award for, um, what's that movie called? I know I'm getting old because I'm forgetting the names of all the movies. I'm Hawk. bad at movie trivia stuff. I have friends that are like, can name most obscure stuff, and I can tell you obscure stuff about some horrible comic from the 70s, but not. Not the new stuff, me neither. Yeah. But, but anyway, like, so he's the one I remember from that. Part. Everyone else is back being waiters, I think. You know, oh no, except Jay Baruchanel was Maxwell Lord. They were doing a version of him. Uh, he's like he was in This Is the End, the Seth Rogen movies, the Canadian friend. Oh, okay. He's done a bunch. He was in The Sorcerer's Apprentice with Nick Cage. Oh God, I don't know if I've even seen that. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> he's had a career anyway. And these other guys the guy who was going to be Superman wasn't, uh, wasn't very good and then there was the guy who was going to play the Martian Manhunter was the same guy who played in Mortem Joe in Fury Road oh okay. and was in uh, the first one the right? first one but he was like um, he's an older man now he's yeah been on heavy set and Weta had designed they were doing a lot of the designs and they designed this amazing design for Martian Manhunter you know, he's like seven feet tall and he's sleek and he's got this tiny waist and it's just like, you look at it and you go, this is the best fucking Martian Manhunter I've ever seen in my life. But then they cast that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so they got, I've got him, uh, they, they put him in this like foam suit, you know, like the rough suits. Yeah. This is probably what I think probably killed the movie was like the costume. Like some of the costumes look great, but like once you come across Martian Manhunter, it's like, you know, he's, they should have CGI'd that. He's like, 
It's like this foam is like he looked like a green thing. It's basically. I don't think we were quite there with the CG yet. I had. Uh, it would have been. I think that actually, that movie would have been just so expensive. All these because they had to come up with all the effects for all their powers and stuff. And everyone had to be different. That was the other thing. Is what through the conversations that you would have with, with George Miller and his team is the thing they realized, which I'd never thought about before, is that, and I know a lot of people would disagree with this, but from a visual standpoint, they kind of all have the same powers. At least at that point, you know, Wonder Woman could fly, Martian Manhunter could fly, Green Lantern could fly, The Flash was fast, Superman was fast, uh, and Martian Manhunter fly. fly. Like, everyone kind of like, oh, how do we make this shit look different from one, one yeah. to the other? And so we had to come up with this kind of scale of, uh, of powers. Anyway, I like talking about that experience. If you ever read, like, Justice League comics from that time, they all, like, the battle scenes, and this just, this, for folks, this is how nerdy I can get. It's the, I'll read those crossovers. And the battle scenes are basically, like, for some reason, everyone has these, like, energy powers that they shoot energy at, and I don't get it. And it's just like, we're taking down this big bad guy, this cosmic bad guy, and all of us are like spraying this energy from our hands. Yeah. Energy hands are tough. I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like... Yeah, because then the image is just kind of a bunch of people kind of like... Looks like they're kind of doing yoga. It's like a fake healing session. Yeah, exactly. They're all like... Doing Reiki on you. There you go. Um... Around the same time you were doing Doc Frankenstein? Yeah, I was fitting Doc Frankenstein in around then. But uh, yeah, I had focused on movies for a long time. I would do Ninja Assassin and um, after Justice League, and then you do Speed Racer. And these things take up about a year every time, yeah. right? Were you living in Vancouver or in LA at that point? Uh, most of these things I would do, you know, I didn't have kids at this time. So yeah, I would be on location. And that was. You know, when you're younger, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in a hotel, you're out, you're, you know, you, uh, the whole social aspect is kind of cool. Your colleagues, a lot of the other, I found, well, this is different than comic book artists, is I know a lot of comic book artists are more misanthropes. And I'm a misanthrope, and I appreciate that. <laughs> but movie people are, are a little more uh, sociable. And I think you probably have to be because you're working with people all the time. Yeah. Uh, and so... On location, the atmosphere, you know, you'd be a lot more drinking or going out for dinner and these kinds of things. And, uh, Money everywhere. Uh, yeah, you get that regular paycheck every week and, um, yeah, you get someone with, you know, you make friends with somebody who gets paid a lot more, like the producer or department head, and they'll buy you dinner. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. And I guess the big difference, really, between why movies and why comics is with movies, that paycheck happens once. And with comics, you have that hope for royalties. Right, that's true. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you. Yeah, but comics. Yeah, so comics are more of a. In movies, you know, there's a rate. Whereas if you're doing independent comics, you know, your success really isn't even up to you. You, everyone is kind of doing their best work and putting it out, and then hoping that it does well enough that you can just kind of keep doing it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I'm. When I interviewed Darrow uh, a bunch of years ago now. Oh, you interviewed Darrow Jeff? Yeah. It was fun. I really, 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 really He's super it. funny. He's funny and he's sweet and genuine, uh, but also he has some sass. 
Oh yeah, me too. Um, but one thing I brought up the Doc Frankenstein stuff, and he kind of just laughed, and it was just like <laughs> Steve's doing that because um, I made it sound like it was a quite the undertaking at that point. Well, what had happened? It was like me and him, and uh, we didn't know where we were going to publish it. I was very much, you know, like, yeah, like you said before, at that point in my life, I really, you know, I love Jeff, but I really looked up to him at that point. You know, he was like so cool to me and to collaborate on something with him was great. But he's also like someone who's, you know, he knows his limits when it comes to collaboration. So he was very much like, you know, you do your own thing and, you know, I don't want to, you know, he didn't want to ever have any conflict with our personal relationship over this thing. Yeah. And then a couple of months go by and I did like 22 pages of my issue, first issue of Doc Frankenstein. Where it's basically hardly any story. It's just like Doc Frankenstein is this killing machine, you know. And then uh, the Wachowskis kind of got involved and said, hey, why don't we let us write it? We'll write, you know, and then and then that's how Burly Men evolved out of that. Yeah. And um, high hopes. Well, yeah, high hopes, but like like I said before, you kind of we weren't, we were kind of. It was more like, you know, like you know, we worked hard, but like yeah, the movie stuff kind of would come in, and so it was more almost a way for the four of us to kind of hang out together. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it was more, um, yeah, it was almost like what Pottery Barn is to soccer moms. That's what Burly Man was to us for a little while. You know, you know, maybe we had higher hopes, but. Uh, but you know, you got to bring your fucking book out. You can't, like, wait 15 <laughs> years between issues. What's funny is it's actually finished now. There are 64 totally completed pages that finish out the story, and it may come out this year. Maybe. Burly Man? Uh, I think so. I get, Yeah, not Image. I mean, I would be happy, but there's a guy who puts it together for them, and, you know, no one is, you know, it's not like there's going to be... It's there. They're putting it out. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's pretty hilarious how it's just like, it didn't just end on like, I read it, reread it yesterday after many years, and it just like, it really just kind of, a lot was left. And it was just like, <laughs> just like in the worst it way. It's like. We're in a cliffhanger, right? It, it, it was like, I don't even, I think there were still like a couple of cliffhangers to come that fell in a way. Like there was still like a good chunk of story. I feel so mixed feelings about it because I just think those comics, the story they wrote is so fucking fun and so funny and like, it's just a shame that it's taken so long. It's been, also it's been finished for six or seven years. I mean, it's been completely done for six or seven years and no one can get it together to really put it out. They've hired a couple of friends of there. In between the margins, they've made, they've made new artist friends since then and wanted to include them in it and at this point, we're just like, sure. And so, like, there's uh, all this additional art uh, in the margins. Yeah. and uh, Like the Sergio thing from Mad Magazine? Mm, but these guys are, are classical painters, so uh, there's, um, there's all kinds of stuff going on. But, um, yeah, they had this hilarious thing where they go into the true history of Jesus. You know, Jesus was, like, raised by fairies, and that's where he gets all his magic powers from. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty funny, and I don't know... <coughs> It's got a kind of a really emotional ending, and you meet Yahweh. You know, you find out how. Oh yeah. You 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 kind of see how Yahweh, who you know, kind of is the uh, 
God of the Abrahamic religions, you know, Judaism and uh, Islam and Christianity, and how he rubs out all the other gods, and he's kind of this like obnoxious barbarian character, and uh, yeah, it gets, it gets very sacrilegious, and you see what happens to, uh, you know, to Mary, and uh, you know how he's, you know, basically hits on this young girl and knocks her up, and Jesus, it's very blasphemous. Now that I completed it, but it's okay. Yeah, you're in Canada. We'll be it's safe here. Space. Well, maybe that'll tie into the next one we're going to talk about. Uh, you know, one thing I, I'm interested in that, like, how much of that was still like your and Jeff's concept versus how much was the Wachowski's kind of. Well, why I would say it started out like as Jeff's concept was basically the Frankenstein monster versus like this. Some kind of Godzilla thing, or well, sect of the Catholic Church that wanted to kill him, and they hated the fact that he had become like this um, figure of, of progressive thinking and science in the world, which really is like such a great idea. He was like Neil deGrasse Tyson with like exactly a giant he, gun. Yeah, exactly. But if you try and fuck with him, he'll rip you into two pieces. You know. And, <laughs> And the Welsh, the Chelsea's came in and they were really intrigued with that and they kind of embellished it and kind of like really um, took that idea to the next level and it's so crazy and you know, now that I'm thinking about talking about it, it's, sort of, it's kind of a bummer that it's not out, but I remember we put out, there was like an idea, like for a moment there, like Burley Man was going to come back and we were going to, we put out like a trade, like a soft cover at the first four or five issues and that totally like, I don't know, didn't sell and so like they kind of lost their momentum yeah and interest and kind of went, and then you know we just now we're at this point where like the, everything got finished and now we'll probably come out next year they kind of um those matrix anthologies it's kind of neat where they basically got to get every cartoonist i'm presuming they yeah, that was neat. That was put together by a guy, Spencer Lamb. Like, that was, like, in those days, no one knew what the internet was yet. Yeah. How it would work. So, I remember at one point, I think, you know, like, for the sequels, he, this guy got, like, $3 million to run a website. Got, <laughs> yeah, because they had website. <laughs> I know. They didn't know what it was yet, right? And so, they he got to create all this original content, and those comics were part of that. And so they were free on this website. And they were like, all sorts of goofy little, little games. And Didn't Paul Chadwick do something? Paul Chadwick did an amazing um, story uh, for the website that wound up in those anthologies. And when the Matrix multiplayer game came out, I believe he was the writer or head writer of that. So weird. So he got a year or two work on directing the multiplayer of that. I, I love Chadwick. Like I oh, love yeah. Concrete. Me too. And it's yeah. such like a weird combination. Well, they were a fan of his, and they just yeah. they just said, you know, if we're going to do comics of the Matrix, and they reached out to Neil Gaiman did one, Chadwick did one, like everyone that they loved, that, yeah. that was willing. I think that, that they uh, they reached out to. I love that Paul's just like the gentlest kind of old hippie guy that like lives on an island. He's really quiet and soft-spoken. He's like exactly what you would get from the guy with the concrete. Right. I've only met him, I don't even know if you remember me, but I met him a couple times in those, um, it was really, I think it was at the premiere of one of the sequel movies.
movies. A lot of The Matrix. And, uh, yeah, he was Yankee, like you said, very sweet guy. He was up here for one of those fan expo cons, but they're kind of... Oh, yeah? I found it hard. I went back to my, uh, only on a couple of them. I used to love going to those things, and I went back and, like, to sit there and draw in, like, one of those little, um, card table chairs all day killed me. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I saw once that, like, Bruce Timm got a special chair, so you gotta... Oh, really? You gotta negotiate with them. Well... They want you. I'm no Bruce you need Tim. A chair. <laughs> Who says you're not? There's no an Batman animated series produced by me. Well, Fuck you almost did it the Justice League movie, you know? <laughs> That's right. All the all yeah, all the movies that I've worked on that had collapsed. <laughs> I should get a special chair for that. There you go. A chair that doesn't collapse like the movies. Um So getting like when you did the book with Brian K. Vaughn, um, was that kind of like, did he realize like you were going to be going full hog back into comics for a while? Did Brian realize that? Did you realize that with that book? It was like, it was like I was working on... United We Stand, right? Uh, we Stand on Guard. We Stand on Guard, sorry. Come on, Robin. It's like the, in the anthem, we stand on guard for thee. Jesus, you're a better Christ. Than I. <laughs> you guys made a flattering reference to the Trudeaus, and I was like, "Oh, this was not written by a Canadian." <laughs> <laughs> I thought that too. I didn't want. To. There were a couple things I was like, "The uh, Tommy Douglas was a nice touch." It's like, okay, we all love Tommy Douglas, but then the Trudeaus, and I'm like, "There's a lot of people that hate Pierre Trudeau." And you don't know what the you don't know what. Listen, you don't know in 50 years, Apple Trudeau. <laughs> Comes out and does something amazing. It helps everyone. Cures cancer or something. Right? We don't know which Trudeaus you're talking about. It's like 200 years in the future or something. Maybe it's just 100 years. I don't know. I think it's 100 years. Yeah. Sorry. I'm derailing. I, I've got my own political viewpoint. Sorry to... No, it's okay. It's, it's, it's funny like that. Uh, what else did I... Yeah, there was another joke in there. There's one character who's like a famous Canadian comedian. And uh, I wrote to him something like, uh, I don't know if anyone's going to believe <laughs> <laughs> you know, this guy's... There's a French-Canadian... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, there's one character, uh, LePage. Yeah. And uh, I remember reading some of him writing, like... Uh, He'd be someone, famous. Someone, someone, yeah, in his letters coming, someone was, like, complaining about that as well. He's like, yeah, Steve also said that. <laughs> but it wouldn't be. <laughs> He'd be famous in Quebec. Huge in Quebec. But then no one would know of him anywhere else. But well, listen, listen, it's 100 years in the future. We don't know what happens to the comedy scene in Quebec in 50 years. Across the country. Could be the next uh, they fucking level Scott up. Thompson. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But it's funny, his wife is Canadian and he's almost all his collaborators, or a good portion of them, have been Canadian. So yeah. he's got like this real perspective on Canadians. You know, he's like spends a lot of time with the in-laws are Canadian. You know, he's in Canada a lot, but he's an American guy, which is, which is funny. Um, I've got an analogy in my head that doesn't work. Um, but I met him at uh, it was an early screening uh, for Jupiter Ascending, and I went out to LA for that. And yeah, he happened to be there. And uh, it's one of these things where like I don't really know anybody. You yeah. know, the storyboard artist generally is like in the beginning. We're almost like scouts. We, they send us out first. Yeah, you know, to like see the lay of the land. And then come back, and then they like you know, you know your job is done, and then they figure out how they're really going to do it. 
Um, so we're there, and like he's standing around, he's doing this. So I went over to him and his wife and just started chatting them up. And um, yeah, then there was like a party afterwards, and it was really cool to just call, to talk to him. And I've been thinking about getting back into comics for so long at that point, I was like, you know, maybe I'll just maybe someone will give me a uh, you know, let me draw the red lanterns or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, he was like, uh, at the end of the conversation, he's like, yeah, well, like, uh, let's do a book sometime. I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. And uh, I don't know, maybe he just had too much to drink. But I was like, okay, well, let's, here's my email. And we traded emails. And then I just bothered him for like six months and trying to get off this movie train. And, uh, you know, it was a great, great experience. A great reintroduction after being away for so long. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he's an amazing collaborator, real sweet guy. And then after that, your new book, which just came out a couple weeks ago, around Halloween. The Trade Paperback of Maestros. Yes. Um, Is that your first time writing for yourself? Well, I did a Wolverine miniseries. Or not a miniseries, but I did an arc on Wolverine. It was like four issues right before I left to do the Matrix sequels. And that was a lot of fun. And I wanted to get back to it, but I don't know if I had the confidence. Yeah. I kind of just talked myself out out of it. And Brian really was very encouraging about that because he said, you know, they'll let you draw your own, write and draw. Eric Stevenson will let you do that. And I was like, oh, I don't know, maybe I should go, you know, Cats and Dogs 3 is starting up. You should probably get on that. <laughs> and then I said, fuck it, you know, I'll try it and I'll, and I'll do it. And yeah, it was a great, great experience. It was uh, a lot of work, but uh, yeah. But I'm at that age now where like, you know, I'm just going to do it. If it sucks, I don't care. I mean, it would be worse to, at least it would, I had this amount of time, I got to work at home on something that I wanted to do. I didn't know if anyone would like it. Yeah. There were definitely a few shower cries. I was like, <laughs> what am I doing? Sorry. There's, there's like too much. This is too fucking weird. You know? Yeah. But, uh, but it worked out okay. It got, you know, some attention. Um, some people really liked it, which was awesome. And, but I really like the people who don't like it. They were like a lot of fun. Really? Like I found this podcast, you know, of course, you know, your book comes up and you're like just combing, like trying to get like some sort of like... The know, ego gratification? Some, some sort of scrap. Yeah, something to keep me going that like, you know, someone really dug under. So I come onto this, um, this website. I can't remember what it was, but it was a podcast. It sounded like these guys are like, you know, a flyover state, <laughs> middle America somewhere. So one guy's like, so I got this comic, uh, The Maestros, and uh, I don't know, there was, uh, I liked the idea for the premise, there was something here, uh, I think this could have been something, but this guy chose to, he chose, his, there's profanity, and uh, <laughs> there's male nudity, and uh, uh, it's distasteful, I mean, he took something that could have been so fun, and felt so good, and there's it's ugly, and uh, I'm not saying it's bad, I mean, he's... He said some, tried to say something nice about the drawings. <laughs> and he's like, there's some quality. I mean, he's good at some drawings, but uh, I, don't, I cannot recommend this book. In fact, it should have been a mature readers. I think it should have been behind the cash register. <laughs> he just goes on and on. And uh, it was great. And I was like, feeling, I was like, holy shit, this guy doesn't like it. And then, it's, and, uh, you know, Bob, what did, what did you think? And then his friend goes, I loved it. <laughs> this is my favorite comic book I've written a long time. <laughs> and then there was just like this dead air where like these two people had to like reevaluate their relationship over 
my stupid comic. <laughs> but that was like my favorite review of it from anywhere. It was like this guy and then his friends like really liking it. And then these two guys who I'm sure, you know, There's come to an understanding at this point. Hopefully. Well, I, I hope you For the sake of the podcast. Um, there's something really neat for me with that book. Because like kind of reading your stuff and for the times that we've talked in person, um, it feels really genuine to, to you and your sense of humor and kind of what you want out of a thing. Um, and I kind of love that kind of that, that vision that comes through in the book. Like, and I think like you can tell with the writing and the drawing that like, this is kind of where you wanted to get to. Well, it felt, it was a lot of fun making it. Yeah. You know, you never really know if, you know, someone's going to really dig it, but that's the way it goes. Um, but, you know, I had been a fantasy fan for a long time, but I came to fantasy later. I wasn't the kid who read The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, my real first, I didn't really even start reading books and novels until I was, like, in my 20s. And then I started reading a lot of them. So, like, the reverence of, you know, um, things like Lord of the Rings and stuff wasn't really there. Even Harry Potter I came to a little later. My first real fantasy book was this thing called um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell okay. by Susanna Clark. I don't know if you know that. They made like a BBC show that's that's pretty good. I don't read enough books. Oh. Well, it's... I don't either. I read like the stuff I like. I mean, it's mostly just, you know, genre like you know, I know the Pulitzer Prize. Forget about it. Oh, this thing's got uh, you know robots and monsters. Okay, <laughs> but um, you know, I read so that was one, and I was really getting into this guy called China Mieville, who write, wrote this thing called Perdido Street Station. It was like I guess you would call it. I guess some people call it street um, uh, steampunk, but probably I mean it's so much more street than street steampunk. Just steampunk. Okay. I just had a beer now, so okay. I was hoping to speak a lot. Subgenre. Street steampunk, steampunk. yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Urban steampunk. Um, And so those were kind of my, you know, and then, you know, these books by David Gimmel. Uh, Mm -hmm. I always liked a more bloody fantasy book, you know, and I liked Harry Potter, but I always liked the other characters. I always thought Harry Potter and his friends were goody two shoes. And, uh, but but the scene in uh, Maestro's that, Ruffled a lot of feather, feathers was where he sells this potion that gives you this huge dick. That's in like page two. Page seven, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the first few pages are the inciting incident, uh, but it's um, but it kind of comes that kind of evolved out of Harry Potter because Harry Potter was like the Weasley brothers had their like store full of like all their like goofy little magic mm-hmm. things that you would buy. And I'm like, you know, you'd sit around with beers with your friends and be like, well, that's fucking bullshit. The first thing they would fucking do. If you could grow your grow your nose giant, <laughs> you would make some real money, <laughs> and and do that. Um, so that that kind of just evolved on. That kind of fits in with the theme of the book about you know power. You know, usually makes you a big dick. Um, it, it's yeah, it, it's interesting because you have this character who's kind of. Uh, Doing some underground magic um, and self-interest, and then the kind of switch of him being a kind of uh, democratic socialist. 
He is, but it's funny, you know, like a lot of people say, oh, he's such a jerk. And I guess, like, I kind of tried to do the Stan Lee thing where, like, I tried to make him as much, like, he would react to things, like, as a real person. I mean, yeah. like, you know, you do what you got to do to get what you want to make a living. But your values are a certain thing. He's a guy who's spent a lot of time. He's been stepped on. He's got this crazy father who's abusive and, uh, you know, he's not without empathy. Um, but he's not a total scumbag. Yeah, he's like, you know, selling some tawdry magic. But, you know, you, as soon as he gets the power, first thing he wants to do is good things, you know. He wants to help the people. And my thing was kind of like, you know, once you, you know, the, the old axiom is absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I was kind of thinking of like, well, absolute power actually redefines the terms of corruption. Yeah. And that's kind of where I was thinking of that, 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 that story where like, you know, like, you know, you, you think you're awesome, but you lose perspective. You kind of like build this little bubble around you. Yeah. So in the story, he tries, he does like a lot of the times he does, you know, he saves the princess, the demon princess. He, he, uh, he's always trying to do the right thing, but generally it blows up in his, his face. Yeah. You know, um, which I was thinking about a lot. You know, you think about Trump in front of the UN is a good example of that. Where like, here's a guy that like, you know, any sane person can see how awful he is. Yeah. But he goes in front of all these people and tells them how he's the best, and America has done better now than any other president in history, and everyone laughs, and he's totally shocked. Yeah. Like, there's no reality in his world. You know, he's just like. No awesome. one's ever said so to his face. So the maestros are kind of like that. Like at the end of the story, I didn't want to do, uh, you know, I didn't even, generally what you would do in the fantasy story, there would be some sort of, you know, the arc would have him change in sort of a positive way where he learned his lesson. And in a way, it kind of goes the other way. Yeah. Where he kind of just, you know, he does win. He, he, he saves the day, but he kind of, you know, because he's got so much power, it kind of enables him to... He remembers what makes things easy for himself. Yes. Or, yeah, more or less. How was it for you, uh, writing for that first time? Well, Sorry, was, second time after the Wolverine. Well, you know, I've been working on my own creator-owned ideas. I have, like, a bunch of them that I've been working on for years, and most of us had been uh, a bunch of different versions. You know, really? Uh, more of a traditional sword and horse version with a dark lord and all those kind of tropes that were more traditional and the only thing that was really the constant was where you would have a guy like uh, William Little who was like from our world uh, who had a perspective on fantasy from pop culture and would kind of bring that you know and had a more like a realistic perspective well I mean not realistic but at least a more um, you would try and maybe challenge some of the more popular tropes. That was kind of like the, the germ of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it hadn't been around for a long time. It wasn't really until I started like sitting down and trying to write it. At first it was going to be this big thing where his father dies and he goes to the funeral. And a lot of the first story would be like him meeting all these weird characters at the funeral, these wizards and whatnot. And then as you pour your ideas into the, con the, the, the container of the 22-page comic, you start having to carve away 
they said, well, maybe I'll just get to that quicker. I'll get to that quicker. And yeah, that's kind of what it, what it became of like, you know, it just became, uh, you know, the structure of it just became more clear as I got into the smaller space of those pages, you know, and I had to cut away things and keep the things I really wanted and maybe I would combine things. You're your own editor. Yeah, I wanted to make as much as I could. I wanted it to feel like, like it's, it's a lot of energy to draw. So I wanted it to feel like by the time the story was done, I wanted it to keep going. But the, my problem with comics sometimes is like they're almost too ongoing. Yeah. A lot of my favorite comics just run for so long, like I can't keep up with them. So I kind of feel like, like the X-Men with the well, ever-expanding universe. Well, yeah, or a lot of those uh, um, corporate characters that I love, and I'll always check in on them. But sometimes it's like great if it ends in like seven issues or something, you know, or eight issues, and I can read a whole story mm-hmm. and then feel like there's like you know a finish in there somewhere, and then read the next one. Or whatever. But, so I tried to do that with my shows. A lot of people thought that it would just be, well, that's it, it's concluded. But no, there's a, my plans for a sequel. I was wondering about that because. Kind of served like it was done. I tried to give a hint, but at I it. felt like while reading it that you were doing a longer ongoing thing. So. Yes. Well, I wanted to. Well, something happened. You know, I got a little late. My we had a new baby, and he got really sick, and that made me. Uh, he's okay now, but he got really. It was a few months of hell, and it kind of threw things off the schedule, and um, I, so I finished it, and then I decided maybe, <clears throat> you know, because that really hurts your sales when you. You know, or late. Yeah. And so I thought it would be smarter maybe to, like I said, I had a bunch of ideas I've been working on for a number of years. And so I thought, well, maybe this other one is more fully cooked than, yeah. than the Maestro sequel. So I decided to pivot over to that. I'm doing that now, the post-apocalyptic adventure. And then once that's done, or this first arc of that is done, I'm going to go back and do the book two of uh, Maestro's. So do you, are you planning on waiting until you have a certain amount complete before actually soliciting and yeah sure you want to have a little bit of a uh, yeah I've been kind of the story is figuring out the story is kind of taking all, the most amount of time over, that I've been doing over the summer the first issue is done uh, of the post-apocalyptic story double sized and um, yeah as soon as I get a few more in the can uh, that'll be announced nice and the maestros will kind of be about you know He's going to bring magic to Earth and solve solve all of Earth's problems with magic. Because that's something about Harry Potter and a lot of these stories you never... Contemporary magic or urban... It's always like <clears throat> a hidden world among the muggles. Yeah. I'm like, well, fuck. If you've got all those powers, take over and change everything. Yeah. You know? But they never do that. So I'm going to... That's pretty much how the Maestro's sequel will start as he shows up and um, solves all these problems. And, of course, it'll blow up in his face somehow. <laughs> He'll explain to them all, like, well, look, actually, no, uh, you know, you can believe whatever you want, but the maestros created Earth, and, uh, you know, see how that goes. I look forward to reading it. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Benjamin. We've had a a very fulsome conversation. Reminder, folks, I've been talking to uh, Steve Scrochet, and you can get maestros um, at finer and most comic stores, Image Comics, as well as... Stand on guard. Stand on guard. God, I'm terrible. I'm sorry. I think I've it's been called up, the standing of the guard the, of Canada. There we go. Lately, I've been getting up at like six a.m. and still getting used to that. I don't know why. What's wrong with me? 
I need to drink. I should have gotten an energy drink instead of this uh, cola. What the hell does getting up at six a.m. had to do with you not knowing the name of my fucking comics? <laughs> um, thank you so much, Steve. And uh, yeah. Well, thanks, Robin. It was pretty pretty fun. Oh, um.